From the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, Australia, you're listening to the Fifth Estate Podcast. This fortnight, we're dedicating the hour to a conversation about drug law reform and a new model of harm reduction that's received unusually broad endorsements. Bob Carr joins our host, Sally Warhaft, for the Fifth Estates Dealing with Drugs edition. It's such a pleasure uh, this evening to have Bob Carr returning here uh, to this series. He was here in 2014 uh, when he released his wonderful, intriguing uh, diary of a foreign minister. Uh, So he is a very rare uh, repeat invitation to have Bob Carr back here. But uh, I also realised he's only the second person that we've ever uh, had a fifth estate about. Uh, and that was when you were made foreign minister and we very quickly, uh, we parachuted in Gareth Evans and Alexander Downer to a fifth estate to tell us what you'd be going through to suddenly become foreign minister and it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, evening and uh, for any of you who are wondering who the second person is, it's Donald Trump. Uh, so uh, you're <laughs> in pretty weird company there. Uh, <laughs> Of course, uh, everybody uh, knows Bob Carr is a former New South Wales Premier and a former Senator who served indeed as our Foreign Minister from March 2012 to September 2013. Uh, He's the author of a couple of other books apart from the memoir, Thought Lines and uh, My Reading Life. And uh, Bob, welcome back to the Fifth Estate. Pleasure to be here, Sally. Thank you. Uh, We're here tonight uh, to talk primarily about uh, drug law reform policy, uh, but we can't have a former foreign minister uh, on the stage without asking a couple of questions here and there on that front too. And uh, in fact, I might just ask, because it's the 4th of July... uh, Uh, and because I've already mentioned that other guy, uh, what you make of what's going on in the United States? Well, for me, America has lost its charm. I've got a, in my office, I've got a a wall of books on American political history, and there's one on the, uh, there's one on the, the, the factionalism in the Republican Party in the 1880s, there's one on the Democratic Convention of 1924, over 100 ballots. Um, and all that kind of thing, the Robert Caro biographies of Lyndon Johnson, all that kind of thing used to absolutely fascinate me. And it was the charm of American politics. Alabama cast 24 votes for Oscar W. Underwood. I mean, it was the, the circus quality of American politics. But it's all being drained away by the election of this, this unworthy demagogue, uh, this serial liar, um, to the uh, to, to an office to an office that was once occupied by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and John F Kennedy, I um, it's a shock to the system. And is this a one-off nervous breakdown by the American system that's yielded us Trump, or is it something about about American decline? I think it's going to be without without answering that impossible question. I think it's going to be hard for America to recover. I think their politics will be changed forever by the Trump experience. And you think you'll get two terms? Yeah, I, um, I think a number of factors play into that. I think, I think the prospect of a conviction 
An impeachment followed by a conviction is far-fetched and a bit, a bit of a liberal fantasy. I think the Democrats are in a woeful state and they could end up yielding a candidate who's going to have a sort of problems of Hillary, who won't be able to pull back those alienated white working class males who delivered four states to Trump. And I, I, I don't think his war with the media, I'm convinced his war with the media is not hurting him, not hurting his electoral base. It might be hurting his overall polls, but not, but not his narrow lead in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio. Great. OK. <laughs> uh, well, let's go back to happier times in American history and talk about Richard Nixon, shall we? Uh, who, of course, started the war on drugs and, uh, you know, his famous public enemy number one. And uh, last year there was uh, an interview uh, published in Harper's Magazine with a, a former top aide of, of Nixon's, a guy called John uh, Ehrlichman, who... Uh, and the interview was... It was about 20 years old, but it was dug up and published for the first time. And um, this is a quote uh, from that interview where he said, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalising both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Tell us with your interest in American political history and your interest in drug law reform of your understanding of the war on drugs. See, that, that's a, a riveting quotation. We've all, been, we've all been shaped by a, a deodorised view of history. But a quote like that draws the curtain back and you see the, the violent class struggle and the, the race struggle, the battle for supremacy um, behind the evening news. It's impossible to report news the way America reports it and still tell the truth. Um, you're almost reaching for a, a Noam Chomsky to explain how the truth that that statement reveals is painstakingly covered up. And again, you're driven to this, this reality of America. You cannot talk about America without talking about race. The, the first slaves arrived in 1618, the first African slaves in 1618, and America still hasn't recovered from from the distortions of slavery and the failure of reconstruction after the Civil War. They're living with that. And so much of what's spoken in American politics is really coded discussion and the coded mobilisation of racial hostilities. Uh, as recently as this last presidential election, so much of it was race just below the surface. So that's a, that's a, I wasn't aware of that quote. It's a very revealing quote. Um, you know, it's as if, as if 
Lincoln's words were, 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 were absolutely proleptically true that he said uh, in his second inaugural, um, if, if it is uh, God's will that we've got to pay a price for carrying slavery, then so be it. And it's as if to this generation, the country is carrying a price for slavery. Um, heroin is just part of, part of our lives. And I, I suppose I, I absorb some of that American, the American notion that better policing could minimise the disruption of drug use. And it, it kept occurring to me that, that heroin dependency, um, and, and back 20 years ago, it was overwhelmingly heroin that we focused on, was a, was a disruptive influence. And it was just expensive, it was just an irritant, um, and it was, it was hard to explain. So I was a bit of a hardliner. We had this drug summit in 1999 in New South Wales, and there was a bit of civil dis disobedience uh, from people at King's Cross running a, a centre up there. And they said, they were saying, if the government doesn't do something to create a safe space for people to come in and inject under some medical supervision, we will do it. And then you're faced with the challenge of prosecuting us. Civil disobedience. It, it sort of broke out in the middle of an election campaign. And I said to, to get some peace, get back to the issues I wanted to talk about, we will have a summit on this after the election. And... Um, I don't like summits as a way of making policy. I think Kevin Rudd's one was a sad experience yes, it and was. it trapped him in, in things that did him enormous harm. But to have a summit on a single policy and bring in carefully chosen experts representing a span of opinions did have an effect and it, it, it shifted my view as a Premier. I remember that shift and I, I wondered what had created it because, um, I mean, like so uh, many uh, people in public life in our parliament, we know that there are people across our parliaments that have people very close to them that have, have family members with drug uh, problems and, uh, I mean, people like Bob Hawke, Jackie Lambie, um, Tanya Plebersek and yourself uh, come to mind and what we know is that if those that we know of there's always many many more um, that we don't know about. There are also statistically inevitably people with serious substance abuse problems in our parliament uh, on, on making these uh, rules that aren't working or enforcing these rules that aren't working. Um, so tell us with your your personal experience, what was it in the summit that changed your views? Well, my brother's death didn't shape my thinking. I, I uh, felt so sorry for my parents. I wasn't close to my brother. Um, we we uh, were separated by seven years. We, we weren't similar. But we, the family was shocked to get a phone call early one morning um, saying that he'd been admitted to uh, uh, emergency and um, we assumed it was another motorcycle accident because he had a propensity to, to crash the motorbike and fly through the air and land in someone's backyard. Um, but no, it was a, a heroin overdose and he lingered for about a year and my parents visited him in a hospice every day for a year 
he wasn't able to open his eyes and he just moaned. And uh, in those circumstances, you don't know whether he's hearing what people say to him uh, before, he, uh, before he died. Um, so I certainly didn't want... I, if there's anything I could do to prevent parents having to visit a child in a hospice uh, every day for a year, watching him expire, um, I would do it. But it was far from clear to me whether a more hard line or a softer line would be the answer. The, the drug summit um, challenged me and confronted me, and I remember thinking the last thing I want to do is to nod in the direction of legitimising this deadly white powder, which is such a pest, such a nuisance in our society. But the arguments build up. And I had two ministers standing in front of me in the Premier's office in Parliament House where the summit was being held, Dalla and Knowles. <clears throat> and I said, look, this motion you've got to put to the summit, I, I can't accept. It's going to have everyone jumping up and down right, right around the... Uh, the city thinking that we're going to force a medically supervised injecting centre. We dropped the expression safe injecting room, a medically supervised injecting centre on them. Why don't we do the following? Why don't we say where a community wants to sponsor one and bring it to the government, we will not stand in their way? And with that formula, the people of Cabramatta couldn't get agitated that what we were doing in South Sydney and King's Cross was going to impose on them something they didn't want. But South Sydney Council, embracing King's Cross, could bring their proposal to us and we could give it a legislative framework and help it in other ways. At the launch of the Australia <coughs> 21 report a couple of months ago, uh, Jeff Kennett and yourself co-launched it together and, and uh, Jeff Kennett remarked at the launch that no serious advances in this area with the exception of the single safe injecting room facility um, have happened. Um, I, uh, I mean, I like to take an evidence-based approach to most things in life and I, I personally uh, find the absence of a safe injecting or medically supervised injecting facility in Victoria, particularly in Richmond, where local community uh, overwhelmingly, including business people, uh, want one, uh, a disgrace. I find it, 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 it that this is... Uh, I hear people that ring up uh, the radio and so on and uh, people in power uh, and argue non-evidence-based... Uh, reasons, sort of crusading reasons why we shouldn't even give this a go. And I despair because people die uh, for the lack of a, a simple facility. Um, the, the, the arguments for it are just overwhelming. Um, if, if someone's going through a period of heroin dependency, it's normally a phase in their life. And perhaps in their late 30s, um, they, they meet a partner, they discover religion, they get sick of the the unsettled lifestyle, and they summon the will to give it up. The thing is to keep them alive, um, away from the prospect of an accident, and allow them to live and get to that point, to come out at the other end. So you're creating a situation where, instead of injecting themselves in, my brother did it in, a, in a, uh, somebody's flat, um, instead of you do, them doing that, or as they were in King's Cross, in car parks or alleyways, they come into 
they come into this centre with this medical supervision and encouragement for rehabilitation, for counselling. So that if there is, and, and there were, there have been thousands of overdoses, we're not supplying the needles, we're not supplying the heroin. But it's a choice between it happening somewhere without medical supervision. So someone said, are oh, you making it glamorous? I said, cut it out. What is glamorous about a medical setting? A medical setting, that's what it is. It's a medical setting. There ain't the remotest thing about it that's glamorous. Here's another argument that as a politician I found very useful with opponents. I said, well, are you, are you going to insist that we add more danger to the working life of paramedics? They've got to go up alleyways. They've got to go into car parks. They've got to rummage around in the dark to rescue, running the risk of needle stick injury. We eliminate that. For paramedics, the thing's easier. And we're rescuing, we're rescuing King's Cross from the degradation of this taking place publicly. But the simple argument that should win every time is if someone's going to do this, let's minimise the prospect of harm. Let's do it where there's medical help available and keep them going for the day when circumstances of their own, their own uh, decision has them opt to give up this dangerous practice. So tell me something that I don't know then about the politics in Victoria of why we haven't been able to achieve this one thing. It's a bit of a puzzle. I don't know. I don't come into another state. Um, I've got a fraternal regard for, for, for Premier, Premier Andrews. I don't come in to, to throw out advice on how he should do it. I wouldn't have liked it if someone had done it when I was Premier. But I just offer encouragement for the advocates of reform. It's not that difficult. It's not that difficult. You just mobilise the arguments I did a moment ago and say that we're a local community wants it, we won't stand in its way and we'll provide the, the support. We originally had the Sisters of Mercy going to run it. They ran St Vincent's Hospital at King's Cross, um, but a conservative uh, churchmen got in the way of that. We ended up with very professional management from Ingrid Van Beek, a professional in this area, and it was her effort and that of the staff that, that eliminated the sort of distractions or scandals or, or uh, irritants that could have rendered this controversial. Occasionally you'd have a, a conservative columnist say, uh, look, um, um, you're, you're, you're legitimising drug dealing. Well, that wasn't the case. The prohibitions on drugs existed outside the, the room. The legislation made that, that very clear. It saves lives. It keeps possibility alive for people. Mm -hmm. um, the Australia <coughs> 21 report had four former police commissioners and assistant commissioners, two former heads of corrective services, former Supreme Court judge, a former director of public prosecution, uh, obviously yourself and Jeff Kennett, who all put your names to this report. One of the greatest frustrations I have, not just with drug policy, but, but more broadly, is just how unbelievably sensible you guys get when you leave office. <laughs> yeah, but I haven't changed. I'm not, I'm not expressing a view I didn't express and in government. In fact, you are an exception and you yeah. opened that uh, facility, yeah. you did other things, and you're sitting here tonight. Yeah. But as a broad, as a broad uh, comment that... that um, uh, it's, it's as if 
I mean, when you, 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 you read that list, and, you know, I've heard Christine Nixon talk about uh, drug policy since she retired as a police commissioner, all these people, uh, and it's like the light bulb suddenly goes on. But what is it that makes... Where, where they, they still have influence, but they don't have the power that they had in office? Why is it so hard? Well, I, I don't know, but again, I'm not saying anything now that I didn't say in government in 1999-2000. I did a, the day after the drug, the last day of the drug summit, I did a 7.30 report interview with Kerry O'Brien and um, I sold it in the way I did then. And I think, I think the public listened to me. They thought this bloke's just been re-elected with a big majority. Um, we, we, we've got the impression over the years that his instincts on this are somewhat conservative or cautious. He, we know he had a brother who died of a heroin overdose. Um, when he says, this is not a heroin trial, and I'm not advocating a, a heroin trial now. I didn't support one then on the evidence. It's not a heroin trial. It's not decriminalisation of heroin. He's just saying, we'll have a room that the government looks after where people who are going to inject anyway can go and inject with a bit of better medical supervision. The, the electorate is very intelligent. We find this when we do qualitative polling and they, they're on to politicians. They know why they use arguments, how they use arguments. They say, they say in these focus groups, oh, but he's only saying that because he wants us to think X and then he'll do Y. But um, the electorate followed those arguments. This is what it isn't. This is what it is. If it doesn't work, we'll revisit it. And they felt reassured. And how much... I don't think it's a hard thing to sell. No. I, I, I think you could probably sell sand to the Arabs, though, Bob. I, I, um, I, think... I failed at electricity privatisation. That was my biggest failure. Poll these people, 100% opposed to electricity privatisation. This um, naive Fabianism that runs through the Australian electorate, Liberals and Labor alike. That was my biggest failure. I couldn't persuade my own party or my electorate to do it. When you sold this, though, was it a lengthy conversation? Tell us a bit more about how you communicated, how you took people along. You, you, you persuaded them uh, to change their minds as your mind had been changed. Was it, was it something that took time? No, no, it was... I, I, my memory, probably flawed, suggests it was a single interview on the 7.30 report at the end of the drug summit and the front page of the, the Sydney Morning Herald... Um, uh, why I changed my view on drugs, car. Um, and that was it, really. It wasn't an argument. Um, I had a very good minister, John Della Bosca, who consulted the professionals in the field, and all that was settled. The legislation was good, and there was infinite consultation. And there were a few people in opposition. John Brogdon, um, he may not have been then opposition leader, who uh, voted with us. Um, a handful of Liberals voted with us, and I, I guess that helped us with credibility, although I returned to the proposition, it wasn't hard to sell. It's not hard to sell. If you uh, could have that time again, <coughs> are there other things you would have tweaked or, or introduced or not done? We sorted out the law, law when it came to personal use quantities of, um, of uh, marijuana. We, we straightened that out. I guaranteed that no one could be trapped in the prison system or the juvenile justice system for personal use quantities of marijuana. But I, if, if my memory's serving me well, I th the police started doing something that I should have leapt on straight away, and it was using mobilising dogs at railway stations, sniffer dogs... Outside to, big parties. Yeah, or at rail stations in the morning 
to get onto people who had personal use quantities of marijuana um, in, their, in their possession. Um, and I thought that, I, th I thought that was wrong in principle, but wrong on pragmatic grounds. Is this the best use of police time? Uh, whether it's on a, a weekday morning or a Saturday night or Friday night outside an, an entertainment venue, can't we think of better things for our police to be doing than harassing people who might be doing something very unwise, but don't represent a police priority? The train should be, the train should be patrolled and an area with, a, 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 with, with some running antisocial behaviour should be sorted out before police start hanging around outside pubs and other entertainment venues, uh, trying to identify someone with a personal use quantity, an unwise decision to, to use these substances, um, but it shouldn't be a police priority. Um, the, the war on drugs, the whole idea of a war on drugs, uh, suits, particularly at state government level, the obsession with law and order. Uh, and we see it every time an election comes up in Victoria and we see it in New South Wales and everywhere, uh, that it, it just becomes, it's a way at the state level of flexing some muscle and banging on your chest a bit. Um, and drug policy, I feel, gets really sucked into that. How could it be separated so that a, uh, a medical... Uh, and safety model of, of looking at drug policy, uh, could, it could be looked at in a completely different way. Well, 20 years ago in New South Wales, we had some real law enforcement problems, and it might have reflected a poorly performing, corruption-prone police force just being picked over by a royal commission. It produced evidence of very unsavoury behaviour in the police force, but also... Not just, but not just corruption, it was inattention to duty as police going off, detectives off on long, long lunches. We introduced random drug and alcohol testing in the police force to straighten that one out. Um, but we had a poorly performing police force and that fed into some legitimate uh, law and order problems. There were gang rapes in Western Sydney. There was a, a migrant community that was making more than its share of its fair share of uh, contribution to prison inmates and and uh, law and order problems on the street there were real problems there but i don't remember ever associating them with the challenge new south wales families had with a drug dependency it, I mean, apart from anything else there are too many real issues like the gang rapes and the car rebirthing rackets and the antisocial behavior on trains which we stamped out by having a security officer on each train after eight o'clock at night. Um, I've got the Tony Blair approach on the, the law and order agenda. That is, you've got to think, you, you can't get trapped into defending the antisocial behaviour of a young offender and neglecting the legitimate concerns for a safe environment of an older man or woman living in a public housing estate. You remember Blair said, I know it's after his endorsement of the Iraq war, it's not fashionable to uh, quote Tony Blair. Um, I'm a critic of the position he took on Iraq, but he did say um, tough on crime, but tough on the causes of crime. And I think that's, that's a good model to have in mind. Mm. Um, something I've observed at close quarters in my own life, 
um, on this issue is that <coughs> there, there are uh, great opportunities, greater, much greater opportunities for people with money. Uh, if you have a child or a family member, a parent, uh, whoever, with a drug problem, who can resource uh, really good rehabilitation, the best of care, uh, all sorts of things that money can buy that can support that doesn't always work. Of course, we know that. But we also know that people that are poorly resourced, their risk of certainly prison uh, and the, the, you know, the criminal... Uh, uh, life and the repercussions of that and the, the chances of getting high quality care are so much lower and we started off this conversation talking about America and as a race issue. There's a terrible class issue too in Australia um, and elsewhere. Um, how do you and, and in fact, it was really highlighted in the federal budget this year, to my horror, uh, where people uh, on the dole were the ones that were being singled out for random blood tests, uh, of which, like many people, my response is, well, you know, you random test in the parliaments if you want to do this to our citizens. So what's your response to that? I... I couldn't have, I can't imagine being in a cabinet where people voted for random blood tests of, uh, of people. Maybe uh, they're on, all on drugs. Un unemployment support. Uh, but I, don't, I don't see what goal it's going to achieve. Well, I mean, my, the only way I could read this is that it was a, a nod to a certain small vehement group uh, for, of something. I mean, it, it's, it, was, it was a real anomaly in that budget, I think, I I think it's thoroughly objectionable. Yeah. So, what you, you've got no idea what's at the at the heart of that, and and why something like that can't be. I mean, the reason it can't be protested is because those that it's aimed at are absolutely powerless, the most powerless, uh, and nobody is shouting out on their behalf. And I look at something like that right now, where Australia is in. What, with what you're trying to do, uh, what uh, Australia 21 is trying to do, what doctors and nurses and other, all these health providers are attempting to do. And I, I just am uh, in, I, I just don't know why in Australia we seem to be so backward on this. The day I, um, I signed off on the medically supervised injecting room, I met the uh, uh, Uber Bürgermeister of Hamburg, he said they had five, and it's not an issue. In Germany or Switzerland, um, I think a lot of other European countries have joined that. It's about saving lives, about being pragmatic, and the approach we've got to take on drugs is not, a, not one of morality, but whether it works, whether it works, and gives people minimal risk so that they, when they're ready, can leave the dependency behind them. Uh, you, uh, I know, favoured, uh, when the first roundtable report came out, I remember reading, uh, favouring the Portugal uh, approach uh, particularly. And uh, again, I just, I mean, even I think it's 11 states of the United States are, are way ahead of Australia on, on this issue. I, I just make, make the pragmatic point about police resources. Do you want the police chasing pursuing personal use quantity of marijuana, or do you want them 
protecting the, the vulnerable people moving around, say, a public housing estate or uh, a nurse returning from shift work alighting at a railway station late at night or the early hours of the morning that might be very lonely. Where do you want to see your police? How has this uh, report been received? It's been a couple of months, hasn't I, it? I think, it's, I think it's shifted the boat. I think it's, very, I think it's harder for politicians these days to use uh, 1980s rhetoric about war on drugs. I don't think you've got that language from Australian politicians. It would ring pretty hollow. John Howard stood out. He saw the medically supervised injecting room as a vile thing. Um, and he said that a few times and then he, he curbed his comments because I think he saw that on pragmatic grounds um, it was winning support from people on his side of politics. I don't think there would have been many people in the boardrooms around Sydney who would have been saying this, this car's turned into a, a reckless Timothy Leary. He ought to be curbed. There ought to be federal intervention. He ought to be put under house arrest. Um, I think everyone around a boardroom table would have understood the, in Howard land, would have understood the argument that, that we'd, uh, that had, had persuaded us to the proposition that at King's Cross ought to be bringing, brought in off the streets, out of the alleyways, uh, under some medical super, supervision as a modest experiment in saving lives. Well, again, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of still just as mystified then as to why we can't achieve that here. There are so many other programs and, and policies too that may be seen as more uh, experimental or more uh, require more convincing of people. But in Victoria, I, I just keep landing at that one concrete thing. And uh, every time there's talk of it here, our Lord Mayor comes out as one of the, the most, uh, the loudest voices against it. And uh, I, I still don't understand why you were able to achieve it. And, and we can't do it here. This, you need to tell me more about what, why? Well, I, I think a politician to win an argument only needs two or three killer facts. The safety of the paramedics. The fact that they're going to take it anyway, give them a safe space with medical supervision on hand in which to inject themselves. And third, it's going to be a bigger portal for rehabilitation, for treatment. There are three facts. You don't, it's not, no extensive briefing required. And then you spend a bit of time as a politician uh, justifying this, saying what it's not. Not a heroin trial, not decriminalisation. Um, legal prohibition remains. What, what it is is a pragmatic solution, minimising risk. We give them a safe space rather than taking risks in the alleyways. And think of the paramedics. Um, we, we will go to questions in a, in a little while, but before we do, I would like to ask you about what you have been up to in recent times alongside this, and uh, particularly to start your work uh, on China. Yeah. Tell us what you've been... What you've yeah, been I run a think doing. tank on Australia-China relations at UTS, uh, funded by UTS. Um, and the thing that motivates me is a wonderful quote from someone I think most of us would admire, Gough Whitlam. When Whitlam went to China in 19... 72 as Prime Minister, he says, 
and hear Whitlam's voice saying it. What we aspire to do is to have a relationship with China equal to the relationship we would have in any of the other great nations. And Malcolm Fraser became Prime Minister, of course, in 1975, and he subscribed quite vigorously to the notion that we should engage with China. China then was a little like North Korea. China had no private sector, its people lived in poverty. The grip of the Communist Party was tighter than it is today, infinitely, utterly totalitarian system, ruled by, by a ruthless and cruel man in Chairman Mao. But even, even then, and it was promoting revolution uh, in the nations to our north, even then Whitlam and Fraser could, could imagine a full engagement with China, and other Australian Prime Ministers had that. Today we're finding it harder. Some of the fault is on the Chinese side. China's got different political values from ours. The current leadership has clamped down on dissent. Um, they treat spitefully uh, human rights lawyers, and they detain an academic. So there are challenges from their side. Um, and they're still a developing country, so they don't treat intellectual property with the reverence that a developed country would. On our hand, though, we, we seem to be harping on their failures rather than acknowledging the extraordinary success of bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. I've seen those Chinese cities, the medium-sized cities recently, and this is, a, this is an achievement unequalled in human history. So many lifted out of poverty so quickly. And we tend, we tend to be rather strident in the last 12 months in talking about China. And certainly no other Western country is wanting to, to nag uh, or lecture China the way Australia has taken it upon itself to do so. Now, I recognise again there are difficulties on the Chinese side, but surely... the And you say particularly in the last 12 months. Yeah, I, would have I, thought I think tanks released a... Um, a review today of statements, I suppose, in the last six months of Australian leaders and some of the commentary on them from people, respected people like Tom Switzer or, or Hugh White saying, that's in their mouths, not mine, saying this is a big shift, the, the anti-Chinese sentiment being expressed by the Foreign Minister Julie Bishop or the Prime Minister in his Singapore speech and acknowledging all the difficulties that a system that represents a different culture, a different civilization, and a one-party state, a different set of political values representing all, I acknowledge all the difficulties that are represented. It just seems that Australians aren't embracing the vision of other prime ministers, earlier prime ministers, who said this can be a great thing in Australian foreign policy endeavor. Why do you think, is there a connection, is there, is there some connection to Trump? Is there, a, what's shifted? I think a couple of things are at work. One is um, we, we seem to be working overtime to tell the Americans, to let the Americans know that we're not being seduced by China. The Americans get a bit paranoid. They see opinion polls that show, the Lowy poll, for example, the US Study Centre poll, that shows an increasing number of Australians see China as important to our future, the same number who see America as important. Now, this is a real shift. It's more not notable, noticeable with younger Australians and, and 1.2 million Chinese born in Australia with uh, a range of statuses. 
Um, I think Americans get a bit jumping and they might put pressure on Canberra. And there might be, there might be in recent months, uh, Defence and ASIO taking a greater share of China policy rather than the diplomats. Um, I noticed that when, when uh, spokespeople for the government recently have spoken about one belt, one road, it's been a criticism. Well, that's not diplomacy. Why not look at the fact that China's got itself a foreign policy that's not aggressive, that's not spiteful in the relationship with these nations, but is seeking to say, let's have common commitment to new infrastructure and to lifting the living standards of our people. I'd rather have a China talking that language than talking the language of, of paranoia and nationalism and spite. Um, I think a Whitlam or a Fraser would, think, would, would come back and think, why, are we, why do we need to make China policy so hard? We faced, they would say, a more difficult China. We seem to make more progress. Um, have you in your <laughs> travels to China ever discussed their drug policy? No, I haven't, mm. no. Um, or uh, I guess uh, n noted the, the life of an addict uh, over there would probably be very tough, I would, I would imagine, um, as it would be anywhere. Uh, the other issue, uh, Bob, that engages your time a lot is that of the Palestinians. And so tell us what your focus there is at the moment and what your thinking yeah. is. Sally, I want to save the prospect of a two-state solution. And right now, the land that should be a Palestinian state is being encroached on by settlements. All those settlements, and I learned this in my time as foreign minister, are illegal under international law because the Geneva Protocols say a conquering power cannot lay out settlements on land that's won in war, for all the obvious reasons. It's an <clears throat> argument anyone would understand instantly. So they're all illegal, and the settlement numbers have gone up and up. A very amiable friend of mine, a leading businessman, said to me years ago, he said, Bob, Forget about settlements. I was Premier at the time. I hadn't given much thought to it. He said the Israeli people will, will haul them back um, if they get in the way of a, a peace settlement. The Israeli people want peace. And the next time I, I accepted that at face value, but the next time I looked a, a few years on, the number of settled, settlers had gone up by another, I'm guessing, 30,000 or so. So you've now got half a million settlers planted on land that's supposed to be a Palestinian state. Now, it's screamingly obvious to me that this is going to make a two-state settlement the only ultimate answer, bringing peace between two people, very much harder, especially as some of the settlements are being planted deep in the east in what no one would argue is going to be a Palestinian state. And it, it is just strikingly obvious to me that this is a bit of an Israeli con. Yes, they say, when, when they've got your attention, we believe in a two-state solution. But, you know, behind the, the uh, magician's handkerchief, you look at settlements going up precisely located to block it from happening. And the Palestinians, uh, I, I, I grew as foreign minister to respect, just as I'd, I'd been so fond of Jews I'd known since I set up Labour Friends of Israel in 1977, I became quite fond of people I thought had real dignity, people who'd lost their homes in 1948, left with a key and nothing else, 
chased out by the, the massacres that we now know occurred, duty of Israeli historians. They've revealed the, the full story. And I just think the world community has got to speak up before the chance is lost forever. And apart from anything else, apart from the rights of the Palestinians, Israel's going to be left with a chronic security problem running a majority Arab population on the left bank. And it will poison Israel, as Israelis, Israelis on the left of their politics keep pointing out this is going to poison us. I'll conclude with this thought. Why is it that every former head of Israeli security, Shin Bet, their domestic service, what we'd call ASIO, and Mossad, famous for being their external security agency, every former head of these two agencies is endorsing, is saying, is saying what I'm saying. Well, there you go, Bob. That's my question, isn't it, about these former leaders, isn't it? They <laughs> all get the sense to them in the end. <laughs> You now, you've discovered a template here. You've got to give it a name, <laughs> give it a name, write a book. Patent it. <laughs> uh, do you despair at the state of the world? Well, uh, the evidence is there to despair. Um, if, you think about, if you think about Syria, if you think about Syria. I remember a few years ago seeing on a BBC News report, they had this kid, let's say he was 10. There's footage of him in some makeshift hospital it looked like a, a cellar somewhere in Aleppo or one of the other battered Syrian cities. And the kid has been injured in a bomb blast in a schoolyard. So he's being lowered onto a, a bed surrounded by volunteers or health professionals. And he's saying, the translation of the Arabic comes up on the screen, why do they do it in a school when they know they, they, they must be doing this to kids? And I thought, why is a 10-year-old being forced to use this form of words? Who is this they? Why is he referring to a they? Who is this they? People setting off bombs in a schoolyard. And he's traumatised by it. As he's lowered on a hospital bed, he might have to lose his limbs. And in, you wouldn't call them refugee camps in Lebanon. They're, they're small encampments. Um just on the edge of a city or by a, by a, uh, a road. Um, you meet small groups of refugees and the saddest thing, the kids there, the kids there who know they're missing out on school. They know they should be in school, that kids their age are in school. And if they miss out on school, they're missing out on something big. But they can't go to school. There's no more room in the Lebanese schools for these school-age kids whose families are forced to flee Syria, or in even more horrific circumstances, kids have fled over the border without their parents. So you think about Syria and you're driven to despair. You're driven to despair. But there's the old, old advice when driven to despair, you just put one foot in front of the other and work on what you can. But Weighing this, um, we've got less war in the world than we used, used to have and, and weighing, outweighing some of these elements of despair. Uh, we've, got, we've got a tremendous number of people who have been hauled out of extreme poverty in recent decades. But why is it that humanity is so 
dedicated to war, the ease with which, which the, the leadership signs off on bombs and uh, on new campaigns and military interventions. I'm just having a look. I've written a, an opinion piece um, on the various wars in the Middle East now that America's getting involved into. And you look at Yemen. Why, without warning, is America sliding into a war in Yemen? dropping a bomb or having its Saudi allies drop a bomb on a funeral procession, killing over 100 people. What's at work with humanity here? You know, Gladstone said when he got up in the, the House of Commons, the great 19th century statesman, and he opposed some intervention in, would you believe, Afghanistan, he said, yes, yes, he said, you can talk in this house about this military venture, that military venture, but what does it mean in a village? It means burnt houses and it means corpses by the roadside. And he might have said, and I'm inclined to say, it means suffering kids. Um, if you would like to ask a question, put your hand up and start talking if a microphone lands in it. Um, Bob, uh, um, Sally's tried valiantly a couple of times to get the, some further information out of you. I'm going to try and tackle it from another angle. And this is, why did it work in Sydney in respect of the safe and medically supervised um, rooms and not in Melbourne? I live in the epicentre of the drug usage problem around North Richmond. I've been burgled nine times. We had a dead uh, person in our back lane a couple of months ago, the attending police. Um, but... My community is really supportive of the trial. My council is really supportive of the trial. The police who attended that death a couple of months ago said to us, they're getting so sick of attending the overdoses, they'd like to see a trial. Now, who am I and my community, who are our opposers? Now, I'm not really asking you to guess the Melbourne situation, but in, in New South Wales, who were the opposers? You're saying it's really hard to sell, but I rather expect you had a few people here who were standing up saying no. Is it church-led? Is it, is it okay. just opposition in government? Thank you. Well, the, the, the opposition was um, a few... Uh, uh, barrel-voiced media commentators, um, but they were opposed to they were opposed to the, opposed to the provision of clean needles. Um, there are a few people on the opposition, conservatives in the opposition, who wanted to uh, snipe at it, and they would have been eager to find any flaw. There was a there was a lawyer who got up uh, claiming to represent the King's Cross Chamber of Commerce, um, but the churches. There, might have been, there would have been conservatives in the, the drug treatment community, people who, had a, who do marvellous work, the irony was, do marvellous work, and their conservative, conservative approaches do work in rescuing lives, but they just had an objection to this. But, you know, given the, the opposition you can face running a government, it, this, this, wasn't, this wasn't a considerable opposition. Just mobilising those killer facts... Um, and talking humanely, direct to the electorate, 
people understood what we were doing and, importantly, what we were not doing. I think you've put it very well. You can win arguments with an anecdote. And the story you just told about that overdose in the laneway near your, near your home says it all. Is it going to happen there with police having to be called? Or does it happen you on safe what, premises? We, we, we hear Jeff Kennett on the radio all the time talking, telling these kind of stories, putting these same arguments that you put with great eloquence and understanding on this topic. It's got, gotten us nowhere. We don't even have the, uh, the nasty uh, radio jocks that you had to put up with. So it's, it still doesn't... Uh, I mean, the, the key difference, of course, you were a sitting Premier and you led it. We're yet to have that. Hello, Mr Carr. My name is Laura. Um, my sister Sky recently died of a heroin overdose um, and I'm a journalist, so I actually put her story on television. Um, but the one answer that I couldn't get, it's very similar to the one that you were just asked, but I'm going to ask it a different way as well, um, is that the one answer I couldn't get is why do we have um, a Premier here in Victoria and an opposition leader who are both against the idea of a medically supervised uh, injecting centre? Um, what, what, do you have any insight into what is going on in our parliament at the moment on Spring Street as to why it is so... Um, politically ugly, why they don't want to have anything to do with this concept and um, not so much in the electorate but why on Spring Street are they so anti? Is it simply um, the idea that was given to me that they don't want to appear soft on crime? Is it really that basic and shallow? I can't, I can't believe that. Um, I think um, crime's come down across Australia so it's not the it's not the insistent drumbeat issue that it was for me um, in my first uh, five years, say, as, as Premier, a poorly performing police force, unreformed, that we were fixing up, and so crime was present in people's lives more than it is now. Um, I just don't know. I just don't know. All I can keep saying is that the, it wasn't my biggest challenge in my relationship with my electorate in my ten and a half years as Premier. It wasn't, wasn't the biggest challenge. I, I was comfortable when I was ever quizzed about these things, about, about the medically supervised injecting room. It was an easy case to sell. So I haven't had time to research it. I've got a, I've got a day job. But I, uh, to me it is a bit of a, bit of a mystery that it's, 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 it's generated such uh, stubborn opposition here, and I'm not here to lecture another government on how it should run its state in another, you know, another jurisdiction and a, another time from New South Wales 1999. Hi, my name's Kate Winden. I just wanted to ask how much involvement um, a government will seek from the people who really know and who are at the front line and who should be making these decisions in all due respect. So the medicos, the social workers, the people on the ground. Well, they ran it. They ran it. We, um, we listened to them at a drug summit. We were persuaded by their argument. Uh, we called them in. They were professionals. They were professionals in this area. They designed it. The legislation took account of what they wanted and their part of the bargain. They delivered it. They delivered it. Yes. Yeah. 
I told you that we experimented, we toyed with the notion of having the nuns do it, um, but we ended up with um, a secular arrangement. They, they were drug uh, um, administration professionals. Hi, Bob. Hi, Sally. Um, you said, Bob, a moment ago that you, had a ref you were reforming the police at the time, and I suppose in a sense they were at a uh, relative disadvantage when you wanted to put something through to them. I just want to know about the position of the police establishment in New South Wales uh, or their position on the drug uh, injection room because I think probably when you put a drug injection room in you change the pattern of dealing and that obviously has an accountability factor with policing. Um, and I really think that we have to address it from their point of view as well. We have to know what they think. Um, that's, so could you talk perhaps to, perhaps to that about the, 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 the position of the police establishment in making a decision like this? Yeah, they weren't in a position to, to be reactionary on this. We'd had a Royal Commission. It was reporting to me through my first term, 1995 to 1999. We brought in a, a commissioner, new police commissioner from overseas, from the UK. Uh, we passed laws that subjected the police to um, ethics tests. Um, very provocative, the first time it had been done in Australia. So a police officer might go to an abandoned car and find a bag of white powder. What he or she didn't know was that they were being filmed. Their response to that was being filmed, or a briefcase with cash. So we had those tests and we had the random alcohol, al alcohol and drug tests introduced to get this police force to perform better. And we gave the commissioner the power to sack any errant police officer. There'd been a lot of police corruption up at King's Cross. It had been unearthed by the Royal Commission so the police, any, any willful reactionary approach by the police was not really likely. They're in the process of a big systemic shakeout. So they didn't, they didn't oppose this. Thank you. Thanks for coming down to talk about this. Um, my name's Ash Blackwell. I'm the Vice President of Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia. Um, just a little bit of history for people that might not know. Between 1933 and 1953 in Australia, we denied the international system and when they tried to force us to criminalise heroin, we told them to get stuffed until about 1953. And in the late 90s in the ACT, um, they spent six years developing a program for a prescription heroin trial. It was John Howard that stepped on that. So my question is, why are you opposed to the idea of prescription heroin? Um, a supervised injecting facility might help um, with the problem of public injecting and overdose, but it won't resolve the problem of property crime. So um, I think that that's maybe a thing that we could think about as a more thorough uh, solution to the problem, and I just wanted to know uh, why you were opposed. Well, it's now a much more um, diverse drug scene than it was all those years ago when heroin was number one. Heroin dominated the landscape. Um, so the first argument against um, prescription heroin would be, well, heroin might be used in combination with other drugs these days, or heroin might be a modest, relatively modest share of illicit drugs. So you've got to answer this question. Will you, will you also have prescription provision of those other drugs? Now, if you don't, if you don't, all the problems of um, corruption the, uh, uh, and criminality will persist. They'll persist around other drugs. Um, someone would say that 
having heroin supplied on prescription doesn't answer the challenge of uh, ecstasy. Are you going to supply that? Um, so let's confine ourselves to the safer area of what you do, not to transform the legal status of drugs, but to minimise harm, pragmatically, what works. And let's have a debate about two things that I'm prepared to debate. Whether the heroin injecting room model should be stretched to include drugs that are inhaled. Let's get the advice of the experts on that. Some people are saying, Alex Wodak, I think, is saying that that should be, should be, the legislation should be broadened. And secondly, the immediate practical harm minimisation model at big, at big music events, dance parties, would you have a facility, even one supplied by volunteers, to test any drugs that, um, that attendees might have brought with them. I was, can I was talking to a group of, um, a sort of a managerial group as a public speaker a year ago, and I, I said to them in the audience, OK, just, I just want feedback from you. If you, you know your son and daughter is going to a dance event, a music event, would you want them to have access to a, a booth where any drug, any ecstasy they might have bought could be tested? Would you live with that as a harm minimisation, a public safety measure? And the overwhelming number of hands went up. And I thought, that's good feedback. If I were Premier today, I'd be having uh, a serious consultation with the community about that. And I'd be getting the advice of the experts on whether the uh, mandate of the injecting room should be stretched to include inhalation. Are you happy to be out of it? Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah, but so, sometimes, sometimes any politician, will, former politician will tell you this, you want to be back for a day to set things right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for giving us a, oh, it's my a, pleasure. a, a day. Uh, Bob, coming back to Melbourne and the Wheeler Centre, it's been really fascinating uh, and uh, we're very, very grateful. I want to thank the audience too for your really, really wonderful questions. Um, and to remind you that you can always hear the Fifth Estate podcast. Uh, we celebrated our 100th edition uh, recently. So uh, there's uh, uh, Bob Carr will be up there twice and talked about once. Thank oh, you honor. very, very much. Uh, please thank Bob Carr. Thanks for joining us for the Fifth Estate. As Sally mentioned, you can get your hooks into a hundred past episodes and a world of great conversations at wheelercentre.com. We'll be back very soon for a chat about policy, how it works and why it fails. Until then, take good care.